You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. It's easy to show compassion for people that are deserving, but true compassion is shown when the subject is undeserving, and Ted seemed the least deserving of all. Attorney Polly Nelson, Ted Bundy's last lawyer. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Name a famous serial killer. Well, chances are, one of the first names that came to your mind was Ted Bundy. Back in the 1970s, Ted Bundy killed at least 30 people that we know of, probably a lot more. Finally, Ted Bundy was caught and in 1979 was tried and convicted of murder in Florida. For the next eight years, he remained in prison as appeal after appeal went through the courts. And finally, in 1987, he met the woman who would be his last lawyer, Polly Nelson. A freshly minted lawyer with a big Washington law firm, Nelson was tabbed for some pro bono work. And it turns out that pro bono work was the Bundy case. For the next two years, Nelson worked on his case, trying to keep him off death row. But finally, in 1989, Ted Bundy was executed. And five years later, Polly Nelson wrote a book called Defending the Devil. And that's when I met her. So here now, from 1994, attorney Polly Nelson. This was a book I had to write. I never believed before in the idea of cathartic writing. But I could not get on with my life until I had written the story of what had happened the three years I defended Ted. You said in the book, and I think I suspect a lot of people are asking you why you said you were born to defend Ted Bundy. The case represented a lot to me. A lot of strains of my life came together at the time of the case and influenced my reaction to it. One of those was that I was a born caretaker. I had that role in my family. I continued it as an adult. And Ted was the ultimate caretaking subject. He was totally helpless at that point, and he was alone. Nobody wanted to help him. It wasn't a case that you specifically sought out by raising your hand and said, pick me, pick me, pick me. No, it came the way that most caretaking chores came, in that somebody just came by and said, you want a little pro bono project? And I had joined the firm in order to do some pro bono once in a while, so I said yes. And then he told me what it was. Did you have any idea at that point what you were getting into? No, not at all. I really assumed that I had just started at the firm. I was a brand new lawyer. And I assumed that if they asked me to take on the case, it was going to be something very simple. <laughs> Boy, were you wrong. I was wrong. Looking back on that experience now, with, with the, the benefit of hindsight, did they give it to you because nobody else at the firm wanted it? You were the new kid on the block? Uh, sort of, that's the way it was. The firm itself actually had not made a commitment to take the case, but one of the associates in the office had a friend that did death penalty work in Florida, and that agency wanted Ted's case to be handled out of state. So he had called the associate in my office, who then figured that only the brand-new lawyers in the firm would think of taking on that case, and he just started walking down the hall. I was the first one he asked. Now, on a very serious note, I mean, there are many, many women, well, a great deal of men, too, who would, they would be, they would be repulsed by the idea, they would be afraid of the idea, they would be, for whatever reason, they'd say, no, no, not me. Why did you agree to? 
I guess that's why I wrote the book, so there's 300 pages worth of explanation <laughs> for that. Yes, I realize the inherent unfairness in asking you to sum up a book of this size <laughs> in a few minutes. Do you, do you sometimes ask yourself why you took the case? No. Um, part of what I meant when I said that I was born to represent Ted Bundy is I, I would never, ever, ever have thought of turning down this case. I never, it never hesitated one bit. Um, I have always thought that it's easy to show compassion for people that are deserving, but that true compassion is shown when the subject is undeserving, and Ted seemed the least deserving of all, certainly in the eyes of most people. Well, you, you do make it clear in your book that your intent as his lawyer was not to get him out of prison. No, I would have found it very difficult to have been his trial lawyer, where that would have been a possibility, but I was his appellate lawyer. And all I was hoping to do was to have the conviction overturned so that maybe we could negotiate for life in prison. Which would have clearly been preferable to the death penalty in your mind, even for somebody like Ted Bundy. Exactly. I think that we as a society show how much we revere life by saving the life of someone even under such provocative circumstances. I don't think we accomplished anything by executing him either. But to, to adequately represent someone, you of course have to get close to them at some point you have to you have to understand what's going on you have to understand not only the the legal side of the case but the human side of the case as well don't you yes that was an interesting part of the story uh, ted didn't remain just a blank slate on which i could project my caretaking needs he um did not like to be controlled he liked to be in control and he was always walking a fine line between keeping me on the case which was very important to him particular because I had the backing of a large law firm, versus not really giving up control of his life. It comes through page after page. He did have to be in control to the very end, didn't he? Right. And in fact, one of the psychiatrists explained that that was a symptom, a symptom of the crimes as well, that just as he needed to control his victims, he needed to control his lawyers, his jailers, his family. How do you decide... If he's telling you the truth, when you sit down in a room with him and he's telling you things, how do you decide what to believe and what not to? I didn't need to ask Ted much. I didn't need to know much from him because as the appellate lawyer, our issues were errors in the trial. And those were knowable through other means. To the extent that I did have uh, conversations with Ted, I always felt that his level of sincerity was limited by his own limitations. You know, at the core, he was a sociopath. At the core, he did not have the capacity to love or to feel uh, the feelings of relationships with other people. So when he was speaking to me, he was always, it seemed to me, trying to think of how a normal person would talk in this circumstance. Was he evil? Or was he mentally ill? Or, or uh, what, what did you finally come to think about him? Well, I never, I, um, the feeling I had most strongly was that he was possessed because he was not an inherently evil person. He was not an, a violent person. He was not a, a harsh person. But when his compulsion would take over, uh, he would go with it. Now, he felt very victimized by that compulsion, that he couldn't resist it. I'm not sure about that. The compulsion would take several days to build up. And perhaps, or it was his responsibility to have intervened somewhere in that process. 
but once it was sufficiently going, he could not stop. It's chilling how he related it as being, as non-murderers think of, thinking of people like him as, as being constantly, it, it, he, how did he phrase it, that, that, that we think it, it permeates every aspect of his daily life, 24 hours a day, when in fact it's far more cyclical than that, at least as he explained in his own case. Exactly. He was always saying to me, oh, believe me, Polly, I wouldn't hurt a fly. I, I've never hurt anyone except once I hit a kid on the playground, and I was really sorry. <laughs> But in his mind, he wasn't killing people with feelings. He was... Right. It was very important to Ted that his victims not become people. And Ted never acted out against people that he actually knew in his life. He had relationships with women. But his victims, he would also... He would have to render them unconscious before they started talking to him. Because once he had a conversation with them he couldn't go through with it. In fact, at one point when he was describing the, what, the, the 15-year-old girl that he picked up as a, as a hitchhiker, that she started to strike up a conversation and he had to, at that point, hit her with the tire iron. Right. Because she, at that point, would become human to him and therefore he couldn't hurt a human being. He could hurt somebody who wasn't a human being in his mind. Exactly. It, it takes a while to try to, to try to figure out his logic, but, you know, if you can... If you can put it in terms of his logic, there's kind of an evil logic to it. Yes. After this short break, how Polly Nelson responded to the opportunity to see Ted Bundy's execution. Now back to my 1994 interview with attorney Polly Nelson. There must have been times along the way when you were very frightened. Most of the time I wasn't. I was only frightened once because Ted had been incarcerated for eight years by the time I got the case, and incarceration was very good for Ted. He liked regimen, so he had that in prison. He was safe from the stimuli. He was safe from the frustrations of daily living. So he was very far from the Ted that had committed the crimes, and I never got a sense of that until one day I finally really needed him to describe a crime to me because he was thinking of confessing in order to avoid the death penalty. So I told him that he would have to actually walk through a murder with me, which he'd never done with anyone before actually admitting that it was him. And I think you said in the book that it was at that point you realized that he could have, had he so desired in his other state of mind, just reached across the table, snapped your neck. Nobody would have come to the door in time to save you. Absolutely. I, I noticed how strong his arms were. I realized how fast he could act. And I was a, a, afraid of him that day. I saw him entirely differently. And then you had another episode that, that, that really struck me when you were bicycling back to the dormitory at the, at the conference of death penalty lawyers. Mm -hmm. And you realized at that point that any one of us, and this is true of all of us, we all assume that somebody else is going to get hit by a car. Somebody else is going to be, you know, the victim of a burglary. Somebody else is going to the, be the victim of a Ted Bundy. And you realized at that moment, no, it could be any one of us. Exactly. Until then, I had really dismissed the idea of serial murders, especially as something concocted by newspapers to create hysteria. And actually knowing one and knowing that he had committed the murders and knowing that he was unstoppable, that there would be no personal characteristic in me, not being able to persuade him out of it or whatever, that would have stopped him. But I think just as chilling as the thought that any one of us could be a victim is the thought that any one of us who looks perfectly normal could be the killer. Well, it's certainly true that if you met Ted, you would not think he was a killer. 
but I think that you would also notice something missing in that he was very superficial. His first words would be, in fact, he was overly polite, and he could say something that sounded intelligent, but once you tried to probe that, he had no judgment or ability to do any deeper thinking. So I like to think that in the long run we would know people like that if we knew them long enough, but certainly not at first glance. You uh, Did you choose not to attend his execution, or was that not an option made available to you? Oh, I definitely chose not to do that. It would have been very, very difficult for you, I would think. I was afraid that I would not be able to handle it. I had been able to keep my feelings about what was really going on here repressed in order to do my job as a lawyer. But I thought that attending the execution itself would be too great a dose of reality. It was such a weird circumstance, even those few days right before the execution, where I knew someone who wasn't dying and yet was going to be dead. It just seemed so bizarre to knowingly be walking up to some uh, healthy person's death that way. And to see it happen, I didn't think I could take that. In the last few chapters of your book have a kind of a surreal sense about them. It's, it's, it's got to be a strange feeling. As you said, What there's no Emily Post rule of etiquette. What do you say to a person who won't be here tomorrow? Exactly. And it was part of that impossibility that made me feel like this is something we shouldn't be doing. It's executing people. It's uh, it's outside the range of, of the kind of thing that society can handle. Part of that is shown that by the reaction of a lot of the people to Ted's execution. Um, it wasn't only Ted that was quietly and privately executed. There were people outside of the prison who had hung frying pans around the necks of their children and were yelling, Fry, Ted, Fry. They were setting off fireworks. The effect on all those people after that is the thing I'm most concerned about, that we were allowing them, we were encouraging them as a society then to cheer on murder of someone. But the subtlety that escapes people like that is that you're not defending the individual who did those horrible acts. You're, you're defending an individual who is a human being and who deserves to continue to live until God says it's time for him to die. That's exactly the distinction I'd like to make. I don't think there was anything particular about Ted that made him deserve to live more than anyone else on death row. Sometimes people say because he was able to cooperate with the police, because he was able to explore his own um, compulsion, he should have been allowed to live for research purposes. I don't agree with that. I think he only deserved to live because he was a human being. And we, as you say, we, we leave that right to God. You would not have been saddened if he died in the sleep of a heart attack. No, in fact, I hate to admit it, but there were times when I wish that had happened. Because many times during the case, the case was a tremendous conflict for me, both professionally and personally. Sometimes the victims' memories would rise up in me so strongly that I would wish that that someone would kill him in prison that day. But that's a different matter than society deliberately taking life. Do you personally have to put up with a lot when people find out you defended Ted Bundy? Well, people will always, I mean, a lot of times people, especially men for some reason, will instantly said would say, you know, I'm glad the guy's dead, which I can understand, but I can't understand why they think that I can hear that, why that's okay to tell me that, when they wouldn't say that to someone else who was close to someone that had died. I mean, they don't consider that my feelings were involved in this process as well, that he was an acquaintance of mine. 
final analysis, are you glad you wrote the book? I am so relieved to write the book. (laughs) (laughs) The book took um, almost four years to write because it's a very personal story. It's about my reaction as I go through it. And I wasn't particularly proud of my reaction. I would have rather have done this case like some, you know, Grace Van Owen, um, unconflicted and just brilliantly making legal arguments. But that isn't how it worked out. I had my whole self invested in it, and um, it took a long time to extricate myself. Attorney Polly Nelson is 69 now, and you can find easy Amazon links to her book at our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure and listen to my interview with Johnny Cochran. When I was 11 years old, I wanted to be a lawyer. And as I think back, I can only tell you that I love to convince, to persuade, to argue. Because I didn't really know much about any lawyers until high school. And my conversation with Gloria Allred. I really feel that all of my clients have been my heroes because they have gone through the original trauma of having an injury inflicted upon them, whether it's discrimination or in some other way. And yet they have been able to prevail. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, she was a teenage singing sensation, but not of the usual variety. She had, as her first album was called, The Voice of an Angel, my 2001 interview with Charlotte Church. I got to sing for the Pope, I got to sing for President Clinton and President Bush, I got to sing for the royal family. It's quite hard to comprehend because everything's happened so fast. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.